Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Student Ministry Sunday. So if you noticed that it was different when you came in, that's what this is about. Um, the idea behind Student Ministry Sunday was, uh, I, I feel like at a big church, you might have um, opportunities to plug students into different roles, uh, which is really awesome. But we have a lot of students uh, who are already doing a lot of service things in the church. So we have students who are, who are doing... Um, they're doing, working in children's ministry. We have students who are working doing audiovisual stuff. And so I was thinking, what if we took them out of those positions so that you guys could see just how many people there are? Um, uh, last, uh, yesterday, we, we went around mulching to raise money for, for mission trips that the students are doing. So if you participated in Mulch Madness in some way, shape, or form, maybe you were a house that was mulched. Uh, maybe you went and were on a team mulching. Would you go ahead and stand up? Oh, it's mostly just you guys. <laughs> no, but look, there's all sorts of people. Uh, we did uh, 77 yards of mulch yesterday uh, and another 76 or something bags of mulch. So you guys can sit down. Um, really what I want to do is, is point out uh, some, some little things like this because uh, at many churches, the student ministry kind of operates on an island apart from everyone all by themselves. And we don't want to do that. We want to, to show that we're part of Mission View Church. There's, a, there's also a couple of people I want to highlight. So uh, Hannah Baldridge, John Baldridge, Emily Swing, Riley Gankowski, David Lotney, Nick Rochford, Kristen Guthrie. These are some people uh, that are taking time to, to invest into the lives of your sons and your daughters because uh, they care about them. They care about uh, your students being able to hear the gospel, whether that is uh, participating on a Sunday night or a, or a Thursday night small group or just meeting one-on-one -on -one with students. We have leaders who care about being uh, positive influences in their lives and investing into them for the sake of the gospel. Uh, there's also some other people that come to mind that have worked with us in the past. There's Janaea Schmidt, Jesse Thompson, Jordan Reese, and I'm sure a bunch of others, uh, other parents. Um, and so I just wanted to say thank you guys. Uh, but Student Ministry Sunday isn't a time to just put students on display. It's a time to emphasize the fact that as brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of age, we're all in this together as part of one church. Uh, so I'm really excited to be here for Student Ministry Sunday. Hey, we're in a series called Joshua, a Courageous Leader. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Joshua chapter 8. We've been going chapter by chapter through this narrative story, and I really, really like this. I like the idea of going chapter by chapter, and I think that reading passages of Scripture uh, in, in larger chunks is sort of a lost art, because sometimes what we do is we, we decide we want to read Scripture, and then we're not sure where to open up to, so we kind of go like this. And then we start reading, and uh, because maybe we've seen somebody else do it, we uh, try to go verse by verse and word by word and pick apart all of these different things. And that's not necessarily a bad thing until we try to kind of force feed ourselves some application that maybe isn't really what the author is intending from the passage. And so sometimes I wonder if we might have more success reading God's word if we read more of it, even if that meant we understood less of it for just a moment. Uh, so here's what I mean. For example, if you were to read the book of Philippians, just through the four chapters of Philippians, you might not know what Paul is talking about in chapter 2 when he talks about Christ emptying himself, and that might be a little confusing. But if you read through the whole book, you'll know that Paul's got a lot to say about joy. 
Paul's got a lot to say about joy. If you did it with James, you might not understand every nuance of every word James is saying, but if you read through the book of James, you'll know there's a lot of practical, tangible stuff in there, and he's, he's emphasizing faith that works itself out in your life or, or faith in your, in your fingertips. If you read Genesis and started in the beginning of, of Scripture, there's a, a ton of stuff in Genesis, but you'll see a couple common themes. You'll see the be- creation. You'll see the beginning of the nation of Israel, and you'll see a lot of beginnings, and that's what the word Genesis means. And so then, if it's weeks or months or even years later, and uh, you are offered a job uh, out of state, and you're trying to f- decipher with your family the will of God, and you're, you're wondering, should I go and take this, this new job, or should we, should we stay here? You can open up to Genesis and say, well, Genesis has a lot to say about beginnings, and, and read about Abraham as, as, he's, as, he ca- as he's called from his homeland to go into a far country. If maybe you're a new believer who has come to kind of an intellectual and even emotional understanding of the gospel, but you, you wonder, what do I do? What do I do next? Then James is the perfect book for you. Or if you're a person who struggles with depression and anxiety and maybe just a complete lack of contentment in your life, you can go to that book of Philippians, which talks about joy. And Paul even mentions having the secret to contentment in that book. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. As a youth ministry, we seek to practice this kind of practical, applicable Bible reading, even if that means we're reading larger chunks of scripture. As a church staff, we try to do this. We're reading through the book of Job right now so that we can have a better understanding of, of grief and suffering. Uh, And even as as a church body, this is something that we choose to do. So Pastor Steve set out a plan to talk about courageous leadership because he looked at Mission View Church, and he thought that this is, uh, he thought about where it was, where Mission Mission View Church was, and where it should be, and he thought that Joshua would be a valuable and practical book to study given our current circumstances. So with this in mind, we're going to read Joshua chapter 8 this morning. And so this message is titled Victory at AI. So if you don't like a story spoiled, sorry. It's Victory at AI. Victory is something that's kind of difficult to talk about in a church context. It's something that we all want, right? Everybody wants victory in their lives in some regard. Uh, The graphic designer at a church, Jordan, says I need to make more jokes in my sermon. So I just wrote obligatory joke about the Browns. We want victory in our relationships. We want victory in our jobs. I'm, I'm not famous or wealthy yet, but um, I think that uh, talking about victory is something that we can learn uh, from Scripture. So if I'm up here talking about victory this morning, it's not coming from me. It's coming from God's Word. So we're going to look at three steps specifically that Joshua is taking towards victory. And they're very simple. This is going to be a simple, straightforward message. Number one, assess the situation. Number two, develop a plan. Number three, work for the result. Work for the result. So let me pray, and then we're going to go ahead and get into it in Joshua chapter 8. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for all of the things that your word does for us and does to us. 
Thanks for the fact that we can learn more about you in your word. Thank you for the fact that we can learn more about us in your word and how you care for us and desire a relationship with us. Thank you for the fact that we can learn more about how to live in this life by reading your word. I pray that we would uh, develop an emphasis and a care for that this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Joshua chapter 8. We're actually in a, a continuation of the story that we've been going through in the past several chapters, particularly as it pertains to Jericho and to Achan's sin. We've had some guests who've been here speaking on these things. So the, the current situation for Israel is they are camped. Uh, thank you. There's a little shelf here. Uh, they have uh, been wandering in the promised land for 40 years, and they come and they're camped on the edge of the Jordan River, ready to enter into the promised land, and their leader Moses has just died, and Joshua has taken up the mantle. And remember, this is the promise that, uh, this promised land was promised to Abraham way back in the book of, the beginning of Genesis. It's Genesis 12. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so really, as they're coming into this land, there's a lot riding on this. It's on this military endeavor. There's sort of a, a tension in the air because it's going from what God has been talking about to seeing kind of the nitty-gritty, seeing it in action, seeing it come to fruition. And it kicks off with uh, God causing the waters of the Jordan to be bunched up so that people go across. And the priests go first because they're emphasizing that, yes, God is going before us. Uh, and it's, it's incredible, unless you're not a good swimmer, and then you're pretty nervous as you go across. I, who's not a good swimmer in here? Okay, a couple people. I'm a horrible swimmer. Uh, I can imagine some people who are like, I'm not really sure, you know, about this, and they're like putting on floaties and stuff, getting ready to cross the Jordan River. When I was a kid, I would turn the lights off uh, in the basement and then run up the stairs just in case, you know, something happened in the dark basement. You do that. And so I imagine some people are like, just run across the river just in case something happens. And nonetheless, they successfully get across. And then they, then they go on to the next task, and that's they're supposed to conquer Jericho. And here's the plan. We're going to march in circles around the city. We're going to blow a couple trumpets. And then we're going to wait for the walls to come down. So maybe you're not a nervous uh, swimmer, but you are kind of a military tactician type of mind. I can imagine that you would be a little bit frustrated with this plan. So I said, I don't know if this is going to work. I, Ted over there has a tuba, and Jamie hasn't practiced her French horn since she was in high school. And, you know, but nonetheless, the, 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 the horns blow, and the walls come down, and, and they successfully conquer Jericho. So now you've got every nervous wreck on board. You've got every intellectual skeptic is with the program. And things are clicking, and things are moving. Israel is on, on fire, and things are amazing right now at this point. And the reason is because they're watching God fulfill a promise to them presently, right before their very eyes. So isn't it nice when you see things in action like that? I remember being a, a kindergarten, uh, kindergartner and uh, you would get uh, you know, a Dixie cup full of dirt and one little seed and you put it in. And you know, Every day you come and you're kind of looking at it and you're disappointed for, for a few days until you see that first sprout. Man, every kindergartner is like, what is happening? This is amazing. Or maybe uh, you've been wanting to ask out some girl for a long time, and finally you do, and she says yes, and you know, things are amazing, and maybe your grades are suffering or your wallet is suffering, but it's so worth it. 
Or maybe you're a 30-year-old and you're driving in your hometown and you see what was, you know, an empty plot of land. A sign goes up that says, coming soon, Cain's chicken fingers. <laughs> and for a while you think that they're just pushing dirt around and then you see the frame go up. And you see the sign go up and you think, man, we're getting close. We're getting close. So Israel's getting close here. Everyone knew the promise, but this group is going to see it happen. So what an amazing time it is to be part of the nation of Israel as, as this conquering of Jericho is as supernatural as anything God has ever done. Within God's plan for Israel, though, it was included that as they conquered Jericho, they wouldn't take any of the spoils for themselves in this first city. Instead, they would give it to the Lord and devote it to the Lord. And most of Israel is on board with this, except for Achan and his family. And so as it turns out, they disregard this and they, they take some things and they eventually die as a result. And when they go towards the next city, Ai, they lose. And 36 men die. In the grand scheme of conquering an entire land, maybe this sounds bad, but it, it almost doesn't seem like 36 is a huge number of casualties to me as I read this. But there's a, a bigger deal going on here. Because the question is coming up, is this really what God wanted for us? Is this what victory is supposed to look like? What if, what if, what if God fails us? What if this promise isn't really going to come through for us? And just like that, the nervous woman is nervous again, and the skeptical man could be skeptical again, and Maybe, maybe that's similar in our lives where at one point we were so excited about our faith and then we, and we were on fire for God and then we started to see what that does in our lives and maybe persecution we faced in some form or another and maybe a church that was just planted four years ago uh, whose lead pastor dies is wondering, is this really what God wanted for us? Is this really what it was supposed to look like? My father saw life in this way. He said, life is like this. You have a wall in front of you. And on this wall are all these various tools that are supposed to help you in your life. One could be finances and, and resources. One could be education. One could be family. Family is something that can encourage and uplift people. And he saw faith as one tool that he left on the wall and never grabbed because he thought, what if I grab the tool of faith and it fails me? Israel might be wondering, just as we often do, did we put our stock in the wrong thing or is this really what is supposed to happen? And all of this context gives us a better understanding of the first words in Joshua chapter 8. Verse 1, And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Fear and dismay. Israel is in a rough place now. And notice who's speaking here. It's God who is speaking. He's not blind to what's going on for the nation of Israel. 
So God, God knows about your fear and your dismay. God knows about your nervousness to cross the river. God knows about your skepticism in conquering Jericho. God knows that you're afraid your marriage is falling apart. God knows about your secret addiction. God knows how angry you are at the loss of a loved one. God knows how angry you are at the loss of a loved one maybe you never got to meet. God knows that you've struggled to believe him. God knows that you've questioned his plan. God knows that at one time, maybe when in your youth, you were on fire for him, and now you've sort of fallen out of that. So Israel has gone from victory and rejoicing to fear and dismay so fast. And God acknowledges this. He's the first one to know. So if assess the situation is our, is our first thought here this morning. If we want to move towards victory in various avenues of our life, let's take inventory. What's your situation? What is the most dire circumstance that you're in? What is causing you to slump to the lowest of lows? What's discouraging you to the effect that it affects every other part of your life? What is the biggest battle in your life that you are failing? Because if you want victory, you need to know these things. You need to know what you're failing in because God does. God knows. Don't expect victory in your life if you act like everything is okay already all the time. We do this as Christians sometimes. Maybe it's just at home and we tell ourselves that everything is okay. Or maybe we come to church and somebody asks us how things are and we put on our happy faces and we have this bright, shining family and then when we get back into the car to go home, everything's miserable again. Maybe we just are ignorant about things and don't know. Don't know that things are, things are rough. I used to think that it was incredibly embarrassing to get a flat tire for some reason. I was just like, well, I must be a horrible driver because I got a flat tire. And so if I was, or if uh, just I had a tire leaking or something like that, I was like, well, I don't want anybody to know that my tire's messed up here. So I kept driving on it. And then it's, you know, it's even flatter, and then you start to hear some grinding noises, and then things are smoking and on fire, and then there's all sorts of damage to your car, and uh, just neglecting the fact that I had a flat tire didn't do anything but cause more damage in my life. But everyone gets a flat, don't they? Everybody has things in their life that start to fall apart. It's the nature of being human and living in a fallen world. So taking inventory of your life, an honest assessment of your situation could very well be the turning point for you. It could be that you finally acknowledge sinful behavior. It could be that you take an honest look at your relationships or your marriage. It could be that you have an open heart when it comes to your faith and what you feel. 2 Corinthians 13 says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or don't you realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, of course, you failed to meet the test. Where's your faith right now? Maybe you feel like my dad did, and you need to just say, Lord, I, I look at faith like it's just a tool on the wall, and I wonder, you know, what if, what if it fails me? You're not going to surprise God by saying that to him. So the situation in Israel right now is, is looking bleak. And God is the one who begins speaking and he says, do not fear or be dismayed. Which sounds, it sounds like a Hallmark card. 
Okay, it doesn't, it doesn't really give a lot of assurance. I'm a horrible comforter. Just so you know this about me, I'm a horrible, horrible comforter. There have been times where Emily was, was sad or something like that, and, and I, I listen. I, I'm a bad comforter. I, I think I'm an okay listener, though, and I listen for a while. And then I say, have you tried this? Have you tried not being sad? <laughs> or she's worried, and I was like, okay, great. Stop worrying. And let me tell you, it's worked out really well for us in our marriage. I'm sure she feels very comforted very often when I do that sort of thing. But in this instance, God doesn't really leave it there. He goes on and tells Israel something specific. He talks about AI, but he also brings up Jericho. He starts to tell them what he's already done for him. And if you look, you'll see this sort of thing all over Scripture. When you see people in the New Testament talk about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it's, I kind of always think that's weird, but what's happening is they're reminding people of what God has already done for them, things that have happened in the past. So in the inventory that they're taking together, God and Joshua, he's reminding him of things that have already gone on. So when you're evaluating your marriage, are you reminded of the covenant vows that you made with your spouse? If things are falling apart, have you ever found, went and searched for those and found them and looked at them and read them? Or if you're examining your faith, have, have you ever thought about the proclamation you made maybe when you were baptized or, or, or gone and sought out people that were there that observed that? Or maybe the church that you're baptized at has a, has a video of it? In Paul's letter to a young Timothy, this is what he says. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul's reminding Timothy, he's encouraging Timothy by reminding him of the public confessions that he's made. But it doesn't just stop there. It goes beyond just the things that we've done. What God is doing is he's reminding Israel of their past and contrasting their present failure with his persistent faithfulness. Remember, we're talking about victory here. And he contrasts their present failure with his persistent faithfulness. The faithfulness of God triumphs over the failure of man. The faithfulness of God triumphs over the failure of man. And I want to sit on this for just a moment because this fact is evidenced throughout history and it's what gives people hope for their lives. It's the gospel. It's the gospel in the context of Israel's failure. God reminds them of his faithfulness despite their failure. And so what Christians believe is profound. What Christians believe is that we can't earn our way to God because we are these broken and corrupt, sinful beings at our core. At our core, that we're failures. It's really the bad news before there is good news. But God's faithfulness to us and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Son, to the Father allows us to finally have a right relationship with Him. And we only have hope and life because of this. First Thessalonians 4 says this, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or those who have died so that you might not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, through Jesus, God will bring to him those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. Believers have this hope here. Do you have that? Do you have the hope of eternal life because of the victory of Christ on the cross first and foremost? Before the good news of the gospel is the bad news of our separation from God and our estrangement from God. So if you're taking inventory, would you acknowledge honestly where you stand in, in uh, regards to your relationship with God? And where you're going when you die, do you have the honesty to answer that question in your own heart? Or are you just driving on a flat tire? What God has done in history and in our lives should influence the direction that we take towards victory. So when we're on the edge of AI and we're unsure of what to do as we're, as we're uh, we can be reminded of Jericho. So when there's fear and in the unknown in the direction of Mission View Church, we're reminded of the fact that God has been raising leaders for centuries. And when we're at a loss for what to do next in our marriage, we're reminded that God literally wrote the book on reconciling relationships. Victory starts with being reminded of who God is and what God has done. Who God is and what God has done. All right, that's assessing the situation. Number two, develop a plan. Here's what's next. Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night, and he commanded them, you, sh you shall, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. And then he goes on and he, he continues with this plan. Joshua obeys God as God told him to form this ambush, and then he commands the people. Now, there's not a lot of time wasted here between God telling Joshua not to be afraid and then, and then God telling Joshua what to do. And likewise, there's not a lot of time wasted between Joshua hearing God and then commanding and leading Israel. And what we see here is their, their victory is not contingent upon how Joshua feels about the plan. And their victory is not contingent upon how all of Israel feels about the plan. Just like it wasn't for crossing the Jordan River, just like it wasn't for Jericho. Instead, victory is contingent upon their obedience to the plan. If they want victory at AI, they got to do what God says. Which, again, it, it sounds very straightforward, yes. But, but God didn't, you know, dismiss Joshua and say, okay, bring in so-and-so because I'm going to talk to him and make sure he's on board. You know, we're going we're to hash out some ideas and, you know, we're going to talk it out. And no. We, but, but even if it's simple, Christians struggle with this concept because we live in a society where everything is all about what you feel. And what you feel dictates everything, whether, it, whether it's your sexuality or your political views. It doesn't mind. Okay? I, I, don't, I don't mind chick flicks. All right? But one of the things that I hate about chick flicks is this. I think half of them are about one person's journey to tell another person how they feel. And it's, you know, you see a lot of slow-mo shots of people running through airports and like pushing guards away because they need to talk to somebody before they get on a plane or it's like running down the aisle at a wedding to say, no, I love you. Isn't that, isn't that about 50% of all chick flicks? You guys, I think we agree with that. And it doesn't matter who gets hurt on, on the way, you know, it doesn't matter what laws are broken. That's my favorite part. <laughs> It's like, I need to steal this car. Ugh. 
Okay, Princess Bride, 1987. Who's seen The Princess Bride? Yes, okay. Anybody remember the title song? It's as real as the... No, nobody's seen The Princess Bride. It's as real as the feelings you feel. That's the title song for that movie. And Christians do this too, right? Depending on how I feel about a certain thing in Scripture, that will uh, dictate whether or not it counts for me. So when God says keep sex sacred within the bounds of marriage, I, I do this. Well, I feel like, I get that, but I feel like God would want me to be happy. Or maybe it's uh, God says drinking is okay, but drunkenness is not. It's like, yeah, but I feel like if I do it in a safe way, you know, at home and I don't drive or, you know, if I'm around my friends, then God would be okay with it. God will never sacrifice obedience to him for happiness. God doesn't do that. God doesn't sacrifice obedience to him and say, yeah, that, that's, you can put that aside if it means you can be happy for a bit. That happens never, 0% of the time. If you don't believe me, just look at the life of Christ. He's called man of sorrows. The son of God nailed to a cross. That doesn't seem super happy to me, but it was obedient. And Joshua knows if they want to win at AI, if they want victory, they need to obey God. If they want to in inherit the promise of the land that God gave to the nation of Israel, they need to obey him. There's not a period of waiting around until we're happy with the things that we need to do. Happiness will not ultimately lead to obeying God. No, it's obeying God leads to happiness. But we, we just kind of hit the snooze button on obedience sometimes. And we say, well, just five more minutes. Five more minutes of me emphasizing my happiness. And so uh, I, I know that God loves a cheerful giver, but I'm going to get right with my own financial kind of situation first, and I'm going to get comfortable, and then I'm going to give. Or maybe you're dating someone or engaged to someone, and you have this secret pornography addiction, and you're saying, well, just, just five more minutes. When I get married, then I'll, then I'll cut it. When we do these things, we're not on board with the plan. As parents... Parents know that obedience needs to happen now, not when we're ready. So if you imagine two parents watching a little kid uh, and he starts running across the street, can you imagine if mom is saying, Jimmy, no, Jimmy, you need to stop right now. And dad is like, he'll stop when he's ready. <laughs> no, the well-being of that child is contingent upon his immediate obedience more so than how they feel. I went to a Bible college and I met a lot of people who saw ministry as a future thing that they would start doing when they got out of school, once they were prepared enough, once they felt ready, and they squandered away their time for four years. Maybe that's you. Have you ever felt like, oh, I, I need to feel ready first and then I'll be obedient later? And you've, maybe, maybe you've spent time and money finding yourself and, and wondering what, what God's will for your life is and what, what, is, what he's calling you to do. And you completely forgot that God calls every believer to make disciples. And you haven't done any making of disciples for years. Or maybe you're a high school student and you feel like you can't, you can't really help disciple your friends or, or, or middle school students until you're quite ready, until you're feeling quite ready yet. In John 14, 15, it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And a commandment that God has given to every believer is to make disciples. Now. Not at some point in the future. 
there are um, a lot of Christians who preach a prosperity gospel that once you become a Christian, you'll be healthy and wealthy and blah, 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 blah. But don't expect victory in any aspect of your life if you can't be obedient in that aspect of your life. So once you've assessed the situation and determined what's, what's going on and what's falling apart maybe in your life, make a plan. A lot of us get that. But make that plan about a faithful obedience to God. Maybe you're single for a long time and you really want a relationship. Make your plan about how you can be as obedient to God as possible in, in maintaining your purity. Um, I... Uh, was just reminded a, a little bit ago about, uh, I was thinking about uh, faithful obedience, and somebody just re uh, reminded me that uh, there are, is a couple that, this is their last Sunday at Mission View. Uh, Bill and Phyllis Johnson are somewhere in here. They're over there. Uh, I just wanted to highlight Bill and Phyllis as a couple individuals in our church who seek to practice faithful obedience to God. Uh, Bill and Phyllis, I know, they, they, they uh, provide, uh, Bill and Phyllis provide mentorship. I know uh, Phyllis has been mentoring Emily. They do things like serve here with the, with the coffee and the refreshments and the donuts. And I know they, they've helped participate in, in leading a community group and all sorts of other things and uh, providing gift baskets and cards to new people that have, come, that have come to Mission View. And we're so thankful for you guys. Thanks so much. Uh, for being part of Mission View, not just the ways in which you serve, but the ways in which you exemplify a faithful obedience to God. Yeah, you can clap. It's their last Sunday here, so make sure you just swarm them, like a suffocating, just everybody go over to that corner when service is done. All right, that's number two. Number three, work for the result. Number three is work for the result. Uh, it's a long passage. I don't want to read the whole thing, but it says this. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people, and he went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And there is the execution of this plan. He takes about 5,000 men, and he, he sets an ambush between Bethel and Ai, and there's this, uh, it's really cool, kind of this military uh, strategy that they execute here. At the end, it says, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, that an altar of uncut stones upon, no, uh, upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings, and there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born with their elders and officers and judges, stood on opposite sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded it at the first to bless the people of Israel. This is after their victory. And afterward, after all of the sacrificing, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua didn't read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. They end with this recommitting their lives to this obedience to God. This is the execution of the plan, the plan that God set out for Joshua and Israel. 
It wasn't easy. It required effort. required hard work. And sometimes, often, we discover that the areas of, our, of failure in our life, we, we know what they are, and we know we need to formulate a plan, and we know where we need to go and what we need to do, but we just sit on our hands. And maybe if we're Christians, we spice it up a little bit by peppering in some, some prayer. And it might look like this. Uh, if a person loses their job, they might just pray and pray and pray and pray and talk to this person about it and talk to that person about it. And they might talk about how God is sovereign and God is in control. But if they don't get up off the couch and go fill out applications and seek interviews, they shouldn't expect a job no matter how hard they pray about it. We do this not just with our New Year's resolutions, but with our lives, right? So what happens is we might overemphasize either God's sovereignty or we might overemphasize man's responsibility. And this is what I want us to remember. We can't overemphasize the sovereignty of God to the point where we do nothing. And we can't overemphasize man working to the point where we don't rely on God. The two must work together if you're seeking victory in your life. God's sovereignty works with the responsibility of man. The compatible nature of these two things is evidenced here as Joshua is obeying God and leading the people of Israel. They need to go and work. So don't expect victory if you neglect your own responsibility and don't expect victory if you neglect the sovereignty of God. When it comes to your own responsibility, that may even mean that sacrifice is involved. Moving towards victory financially or relationally or spiritually or what have you might require sacrifice. We recently read this passage uh, in, in the youth group. This is Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. We were talking about this in the context of pornography because that's similar to the context that Jesus talks about. And what this would look like practically maybe for some people uh, would be throwing their phones away. And I started thinking about this and I started thinking about maybe what some of the uh, responses to that would be if somebody wanted to throw their phone away to conquer an addiction to pornography and, uh, or their laptop or whatever. And, oh, my, my photos are on there. Or it's so much easier to text my friends with a smartphone. Or I don't want to look stupid by having a dumb old flip phone or whatever. If you want victory over pornography, you need to sacrifice. Nobody ever said gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand was easy. Maybe it's that you want a better relationship with your spouse. And you, have, you and your spouse have had arguments over how much time you spend watching sports in the fall. If you want victory, there needs to be sacrifice. Get, get rid of it. Oh, but I, I'm, I, maybe, maybe we'll put a ministry spin on it. Well, I'm trying to talk to my coworkers. Uh, I'm trying to, you know, connect with them about sports to build relationships with them. But your marriage to your wife is suffering. If you want victory, there's got to be sacrifice. Confronting an entire city for Israel wouldn't have been easy because victory isn't easy. And so maybe this all sounds very straightforward. But assess the situation. Acknowledge your present circumstances honestly. Remember who God is and what God has done. Develop a plan. Make obedience 
part of that plan and emphasize obedience over how you feel about it. And then work. Work for the result. Rely on God, but sacrifice. And different people might be stuck at different places on their path towards victory. Uh, They might be at the assess the situation part. They might be at the work for the result part. But all in all, we need to remember the bad news, that at our core we have failed and we are failures. But God is the one who brings victory, and he's already done so. Let me pray. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us, for your persistent faithfulness to us, despite our present failure. God, I pray that you would help us on our path towards victory. And though this may be simple and straightforward, I think we can pull this application out of your word in Joshua chapter 8. Because we see how you interact with and care for the nation of Israel. And I think it's similar to the way you interact with and care for us. Pray that you would help us to pursue victory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.